This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. So you'll pick me up tonight at 745? Oh, well, no, I got a few things that to take care of first, but what, why don't we make it quarter to eight? <laughs> Stop it. Okay, 7.45. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and is college really worth it? Whether it's undergraduate or graduate school, these are the most important dollars you'll spend. So today, Ron Lieber, the Your Money columnist for the New York Times, joins us to help you make a better decision. And many people are afraid of China stealing our information. But could they be doing that using that fintech app you've got on your phone? We'll share details. Of course, we'll also throw out the Haven Lifeline to Suzanne, and I'm going to do my best to stump you on my student loans-related trivia. And now, two guys who should consider taking over my student loan payments, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. There's strategic debt for college, and then there's Doug debt for college, so... Who knows how that's going to work? Hey, everybody. Welcome to Monday. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And happy new week to you. We're rolling on three days of brand spanking new episodes. Hot out of the oven. Can't wait to roll into them. And let's, let's get going on the first one right now by introducing to you, my friend, the man across the table from me who carries this show. It's Mr. OG. I'm actually pretty happy that you finally recognized the value that I provide on a day-to-day uh, basis around here. Well, once I realized that you were slippery enough to be able to get through the sensors just over a week ago, all hats off, my friend. 
It's all I've heard about lately. Yeah, me too. Sorry about that. <laughs> we got a great show today. We're talking about college. Besides retirement, the most expensive time of your life. And if you think about retirement as just another phase of life, OG, and college really being an expense, this is probably for a lot of families out there, the most expensive thing that they're going to buy. College? Yeah, I'd say so. It's an important time of life for a lot of people. We got Ron Lieber here from the New York Times, OG, and I think there's a lot of things to ask him. We've talked a lot about not going to college. We've talked about the ROI of college. Of course, we have people push back saying that college isn't always about ROI. There's different reasons people go to school. I think knowing Ron, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Great show today with Ron Lieber here. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. We've got Ron Lieber here, but first, let's roll into some pretty important headlines. Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Speaking of important, it doesn't get more important than this. <clears throat> this comes to us from Barron's, and it's written by Jacob Shonenshine. Maybe the most important headline we'll read this week. Oh, gee, the stock market can't get much better from here. Why a correction could be coming. Oh, dun, dun, dun. I'm so glad that uh, Jacob has called the 87th downturn of the last three that we had. Yep. While the market has largely just gone to those headlines over and over and over, Jacob's like, I'm here all week. Tip your weight, staff. The market might go down. Yeah. Yeah, watch us. Jacob writes, the stock market could experience a correction soon. Oh, well, that's forceful. That is totally putting all your eggs <laughs> behind your market research. It may go up or down, maybe down. I, I'm going to go down. <laughs> The stock market just just might maybe uh, someday Perhaps. At, at a point in time in the future, nearish or farish. We're unsure. Uh, I'm not uncertain. He should say the stock market will experience a correction. Yeah, get some energy behind it, dude. Because that's what we'd say. The stock market's going to have a correction, people. We're going to call it right now. The stock market will have a correction. And it's going to hurt, OG. The correction's going to hurt. Did you know that? Physically or emotionally? Well, no, corrections do hurt. I'm saying that's our call. Oh. Our call is there will be a correction and it will hurt. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it may happen so fast you didn't even know it happened. <laughs> like, like the one last year? Well, no, that one you knew happened. <laughs> Prices already reflect a wallop of government spending and central bank aid that can't get much larger from here, Bank of America warns. Other market watchers are downbeat as well. Valuations are high, Jacob writes, the equity risk premium, the earnings yield on the average SP 500 stock minus the yield on the safe 10-year treasury note, roughly 3.2%. 
The lower the premium, the more richly valued stocks are. Historically, the risk premium barely dips below three, but when it does, it often portends mm. portends market weakness. Do you think that he knew that word, or did did Jacob double click on it and go thesaurus.com? <laughs> and then he read it and went, Hey oh, I can put this in my piece. I'm gonna put a five dollar word in there. Yes. I bet over at Barron's they have a, like a list of words. A bingo, you know, portends is his center square that he's got to get. <laughs> oh, gee, tell me, tell me, because I picked this because we haven't done one of these in, I think, a good six months since we've seen the last one of these. I think we all got distracted by the hmm. election, which we ranted on last week. So let's go back to the old grind for people new to the show. What should we do? What big moves should we make? to protect against Jacob's downturn. Definitely. You definitely want to sell a lot of puts. Uh, that's a really protective measure. Um, if you can do some trailing stops on your ETFs, that would be helpful. You know, you can, uh, you can do those. And then um, really the biggest thing is you just want to know when the peak is going to happen and uh, hit pause for a second, get off the roller coaster ride, get all into cash and then as soon as it goes all the way back down, you rebuy. Wait for it to go down. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You get off at the top, you wait for it to go down, and then you rebuy. Preferably when you rebuy, you rebuy a margin. Because then you can leverage the up. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. Here's the thing, though, guys. Do not, do not get out of the market too early because what's happened before, when people have done that, we've warned against this over and over. Don't get out too early because if you get out too early, OG, it goes up and then it comes back to that same point where you, you got out and you don't make any money that way. Yeah. Well, you make money if you do some calendar call spreads, but they got to be bullish. Then you totally make money. But that's a that's kind of a 201 thing. Do, do I need to add the laugh track to the back of that? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. So none of that is what you should do. It's impossible to be consistently right on the getting out at the top or getting back in at the bottom. The thing that happens is in our minds, we, if we happen to be right once, we figure out that, or we, we kind of trick ourselves that we can do it multiple times. It's a casino game, and then you win, and you go, oh, well, I could win this all the time. And the reality is, is that it's just, it's just impossible to predict. I mean, just look at the day-to-day stock price movements of any stock or index, and just, just, just practice just practice. Use what they call a paper trading account. Do it for the next week. Just go, okay, I think that tomorrow the S&P is going to be up or down and whatever percent you think it's going to be. And then track your results. And if for some reason, after 10 or 20 days of doing this, you've hit every single one, then I give you permission to be a day trader because you'll be right, which will be great. But if you're not, then then you just have to stick to the... It sounds so. It sounds so stupid. It sounds so... Boring. Like there has to be something. And the something is nothing. Don't do anything. How many times did you have clients say, there's got to be something we can do? Yeah. And they do. They look at you like you're a moron when you go, no, well, no, there is not. And it's not that I don't want to do something. I want to do something as bad as the next person does. I read this and I go, mm, stock market seems high to me. It's gone up for a long time. Okay. Yeah. I buy that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's that. a reasonable proposition, right? Yeah. Fall into all the emotional traps. And your brain goes, can't go up forever. Yeah, okay, I get that these indicators are high. Bank of America doesn't like it. Crap, they're a big name. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should do something. Yeah. Don't. And and who came on? One of the behavioral people came on and said, I don't remember if it was Dan Ariely or Daniel Crosby. 
was talking about how this is the one area of your life where our animal instinct, animals, the animal in us, OG, there's definitely an animal in you. Rawr. <laughs> the animal instinct in us all has a bias for action, right? And this is the, one of the few areas of our life where doing nothing is the appropriate thing, which doesn't jive, yeah. right? Hey, I'm hungry. What do I do? Got to go to the refrigerator and get some food. Hey, I maybe went to the refrigerator too much. Well, I got to go work out. There are very few times where sitting on the sofa, eating more Cheetos, just doing what I was doing is a better idea, except here. Yeah. And it seems like it's the wrong thing to do, especially when you're, you know, watching uh, the market go down and, and, uh, you know, you had 50 grand and now you got 40 and, and, you know, you feel like, oh, I should be doing something, but it's just doing the same thing over again is the right thing to do. And then second guessing yourself. Even with my play money a couple of weeks ago, as you know, OG, I was pondering, you know exactly what I was pondering. You, you should even say what I was pondering because I, don't, I, don't I talked to you all about it. I can't remember. General Motors. General Motors. Because that's the, out of all of the places to put your money for technology, car manufacturing, that would be the one that I, was, I would pick. <laughs> but I was going to put some of my, <laughs> I was going to put some of my hard earned money into General Motors, and I kept saying that it was my bias. It was my bias. You did recognize that, yeah. I wasn't, you know, it's your business, so I wasn't going to try to talk you out of it. But. No, but have you seen what, what's happened to General Motors stock since I decided not to do it? Uh, well, you didn't do it, so that means it went up a whole bunch. Yes, it didn't go up a little. Oh. It went up a lot. It went up a lot. Well, but, the, I mean, last week, this one caught me off guard. Last week, Netflix reported hey, we didn't make any money, but good news, we got lots of subscribers. And we really think starting in a year from now, we won't need to borrow any money ever again. <laughs> the stock went up 10%. Just unpack that a little bit. We didn't make any money. We got more subscribers than we originally thought. And we think starting next year will be cash flow positive. Has this company, I didn't bother to look, has this company been cash flow negative since the beginning of time? Have they been financing their growth? And the stock's at five hundred dollars a share and going to five and, it, and the over and and on that news went to five fifty. Like, oh well, thank God, they're going to be profitable in a year. I should give them all my money now. I mean, who who? who I don't get it. If not uh, every quarter negative, we can confidently say most quarters negative. I I started talking about this. I'm just going back to the exact date. We talked on Monday, January 11th, and it was at 4501. Okay. It is, as we record this, uh, trading at $55 a share. Ah, it's a measly $10 a share. Who cares? <laughs> it's only 25% return. Yeah, yeah, in a two-week period. No big deal. Guess what? Market timing doesn't work. Exactly. And my point wasn't, wasn't that. Uh, my point was have to divorce the outcome from the decision-making that you had. My decision, even with my play money was, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do this because I've got this huge bias toward GM because my dad worked there. I'm a Detroit guy. I want GM to do great. I want Ford to do fantastic. So I decided not to do it and missed out on a huge short-term return. Our second headline, before we get to our second headline though, OG, I got I got to create a noise for this. We we have to get when we do this. Uh, we have to have a brand new theme here in the middle of the headlines on Mondays, because a new segment we have somebody who should have probably known better sharing financial 
TikTok videos. You want some good news? Try the stacker, stackybenjamins.com forward slash stacker, because in the next few minutes, you're not going to hear anything <laughs> worthwhile. Somebody turned on their video and had the fortitude. Ready to hear today's TikTok financial guru? Can't wait. Here we go. How about this one? It's a difference between investing in the stock market versus real estate. Here is how it feels to invest in the stock market. One hour, you can be feeling good, and then you're down. And then you're up, and then you're down. I mean, this could be every minute or every second, just like that. It's like you're laying at the hospital bed. They monitor your heartbeats, and you don't know when the game will be over. Come on, man. Now, here's real estate. With real estate, you start here, and then it'll just slowly, slowly go up like that. This, you can have a peace of mind and actually go to sleep with. This, you don't know. Okay? So get rid of the get rich quick and focus on the get rich for sure. (laughs) He almost had me until for sure. Like, okay, I'm not on the get rich quick train. Ooh, the get rich for sure train. I don't know if you know this, but real estate is guaranteed. Guaranteed. I should show you my (laughs) P&L. You say it, you say it like it's three separate words, guaranteed. Yeah. No downside to buying real estate. Got a profit and loss statement from last year that would beg to differ. (laughs) But that's also not a rip on real estate. We, we love real estate. I think that over a long period of time, real estate and stocks have largely gotten to the same place. The person's actually even right. OG, how they get there is a different path. Different. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Stocks on a daily basis. He's exactly right, man. It is. There's a lot of jiggle, a lot, a lot of wiggle. Just, just just like me when I run. So a lot, lot going on there and real estate much slower, but Hey, when real estate goes down, it ain't fooling around. I'm looking at you 2008. And the thing that he fails to talk about here is of course the stock market. Your money's fairly liquid. OG. You can be out of the stock market instantaneously if you want to be, and you can have your money in a matter of days Mm -hmm. in your hand. And if you want with some brokerages, and I don't advise this, but you can borrow against the cash until you get it. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways where you could be incredibly liquid real estate. You can't peel off the bathroom. We're about to talk to Ron Lieber. You can't peel off the bathroom to pay for juniors college and you got to take out a loan to get your own equity and that's if they let you yes if you're worthy enough tiktok geniuses you got a tiktok genius you want to share with us we're taking submissions this is going to be a new monday feature until we run out and as og when you pointed this out to me this barrel is full because even without the help of all the genius stackers out there uh you, you found a bajillion oh yeah in a hurry some geniuses like this gentleman. She, that's all I got to say to that guy. So send those to me, Joe at stackingbenjamins.com if you want to play along. Our second headline, our second headline comes to us from foreignaffairs.com. Financial technology is China's Trojan horse. Popular Chinese mobile payment apps, just the tip of the spear, it says. Goes on to say that a couple of weeks ago, the government banned some popular money sharing apps uh, that came out of China, OG, and 
the fear being that uh, we've got some spying going on through some apps. In fact, wait, so hold on. People think that other countries are using technology to gather information illegally on other countries' citizenry. Well, just like Jacob earlier saying the stock market might go down, stock market isn't going to go down. She. I always think it's interesting when uh, when you hear these articles because the first thing that I think of is, do they have the same articles in China? Beware of PayPal. U.S. U.S. stealing your data through PayPal app. Because, hold on, let me fashion my tinfoil hat. There, now it's on. Is there any chance that the United States government does the same thing? No. No? no? no. Oh, okay. All right, I didn't, didn't know. So China's taking your stuff. The Russians are taking your stuff. We're taking Russian stuff. It's North just, Korea. Oh, thank God. You know, because Korean food is amazing. So I'm okay with that. Kimchi for the win. <laughs> exactly. So uh, how do you make it so the Russians don't hack your stuff, dude? I don't know. Call me crazy. Maybe have a secure password. Whenever I read pieces like this, that's the first thing that I think. I mean, I can do a lot of... Uh, I can have a lot of consternation. I can say, man, I'm not going to make my personal financial life easier because I'm worried about them getting. And then I think about two things. I think about my own password security, to your point, and how do I keep my stuff safe? And then I also think, oh, gee, and I'm not trying to be flipping here, but at this point, what am I hiding? Everybody has all my stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. If there's something that you need to hide, then you maybe need to hide it. But, uh, but, but I can't think about anything about my life that is not already compromised. Yeah. Socials, dates of birth. Yeah. All Does that stuff. mean I'm 52 and I've already given up? Nailed it in. <laughs> just, just, just put the chip in me. Yeah. Just, and let's, let's get it over wow. with. Too soon, dude. Too soon. <laughs> is it too soon? Too soon. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, I mean, I think it's foolish to assume that it can't happen to you. The whole concept sure. of identity theft and that sort of thing. I mean, we see, we see all the alerts that happen, you know, oh, Citibank lost all your stuff or this program lost all your stuff or this pe- these people were hacked and all your stuff was stolen. That's it happened to me two weeks ago. So you got to put the protections in place on things like your charge cards. Now, let's just walk through that. So somebody steals your credit card and charges $100,000 worth of stuff. Are you on the hook for it? Of course not. It's not yours. You didn't do it. You know, you have some liability, some some $50 maybe type deal. But most credit card companies will go, oh, that's fraud. Boom, we'll just knock all that stuff off. And so you can look at that and say, well, well, then I don't really care. Except for the fact that if they ha- that happens too many times, what happens to credit card fees or interest rates or you know bank charges and stuff like that if there's too many losses? Well, and in my experience, and this is one that went that goes way back, but there was an investigation they had when I was much younger. During that time, I didn't have access to that credit. Yeah. Until their fraud. So so that might be an hour, it might be twenty four hours, might be a week. Yeah, it's it's you need to insulate yourself from the expense of the time and energy and effort that it's gonna take to unwind this stuff. I mean, you can look at it from the perspective of, well, you know, who cares? They'll give me my money back. Yeah, but it might take a while. So do things like set two-factor authentication on things. Make sure that your, you, you know, your phone has the alerts on it so that if any charges happen over a certain dollar amount, you know, that you get pinged for it. You know, that, that sort of freeze your credit. I mean, if you're not out buying a new car every couple of weeks or refinancing your house, so just freeze the credit report. It's easy to unfreeze. You just call them and give them a number. And if they don't have the number, then they have to mail it to you, which is even more secure because it takes a while to like kind of unwind that. So you can do these things. You can put these roadblocks 
that make it just a little bit more challenging. It's like the analogy of, you know, Joe, you and I are in the woods and the bear starts chasing us. And we go, <laughs> no. and we go like, I don't have to run faster than the bear. I oh, just have to run faster than you. This is better than the disgusting joke I thought you were going to tell. <laughs> no, I can tell a joke. No, I'm just... <laughs> Uh, it like, does remind me of a man from Nantucket. <laughs> who, not the place. No, anyway. We're making a podcast. Yeah. yeah. No, I get where you're going. Got to run faster than the yeah, other So guy. just make yourself the non-appealing target. It's just like your car doors. You park out on the street. If your doors are unlocked, you've got a greater likelihood of getting your crap stolen. Because people who are out there vandalizing stuff and just kind of getting what they can get aren't interested in smashing windows because it makes noise. So they just say, oh, this door's unlocked. I can open it. So just lock your door. Same thing with your credit and your money. Just just make yourself the non-appealing target. It may still happen, but you know, you got to do what you can do. And but I don't think that you you just skip all of the fintech because you're like, but I can't use Venmo because God forbid the Chinese know that I paid my brother 40 bucks for, you know, football tickets. It's like, you know, I don't know. It's like, you know, I don't know. That's That was, that was the <laughs> summation of that. Drop the mic right there. Hard hitting. I think we're done. Don't even need Ron Lieber today. We are done. I think uh, that may be a piece of our takeaway from today's show. But first, well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things. So I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And uh, the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. And I think our headline takeaways, OGR, will lead with the one that I was going with right then, which is... Password security, have better passwords, change them fairly regularly, and don't have the same password on everything. That used to be okay. You came up with one clever password and used it on everything. We've proven that now now hackers are smart enough to go, oh, maybe he uses that on all of his stuff. It reminds me of that Southwest Airlines commercial from a few years ago. General, there's been a breach. We need your password so we can lock down the system. My password? Yes, sir, we need your password. The password that I use? Yes, sir, your password. There's been another breach. Sir. Right, okay. I-H-A-T-E-M-Y-J-O-B-1. I hate my job, one. 
Want to get away? Now you can with Southwest Ferris as low as $59 one way. Yes to low Ferris with nothing to hide. That's transparency. My, my, my no one you, wait, you want my password? <laughs> uh, and then I think our second takeaway, and I don't even know how we follow that. Uh, stock market going to go down, OG? Is the stock market going to go down? Please, God. This is a gentleman that I wanted to talk to for a long time. I'm so excited that we finally have him on the show. Ron Lieber is the opposite of the best-selling book, the opposite of spoiled raising kids who are grounded, generous, and smart about money, kind of like the OG kids. That was back in 2015. Of course, Ron has been the Your Money columnist for the New York Times since 2008, and he always has a point of view that is incredibly grounded, objective, get rid of all the excess stuff because it's just you and your money. Let's say hello to Ron Lieber. And I'm my dad, shortwave radio. It's a guy I've wanted to talk to forever. Ron Lieber's here. How are you, man? I just feel lucky to be here as well. So thank you. Well, I have to ask you, because you sit in this spot with the New York Times where you get to research all kinds of different things. And hearing you talk about college doesn't surprise me, but your book is so in-depth. And then my brain hit me and said, well, wait a minute, Ron has two daughters. How much of this is really for an audience? And how much of this is cathartic uh -huh. just for dad, Ron? Come on. Uh, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, where to start with that? This was a journey for me personally, since you're asking. I was a personal finance columnist at the New York Times when my now 15-year-old was born. And so, of course, right away, being a personal finance geek who's always trying to beat the system, I'm like, all right, what are these 529 plans and how do I crack the code on them? And back then, they were still kind of lame, right? They were expensive in many states and the investments weren't so good and there was a lot of active management. And so I wrote some about how to save for college. But mostly we solve for that. Those plans have gotten a lot better. And so I kind of left that behind in terms of coverage, moved over to the New York Times in 2008. And then right then and there, during that last big recession, all of these people started to show up with all of this student loan debt. And what we realized very quickly was that debt was growing like wildfire, right? It's tripled in something like 14 years. And we began to ask some serious questions then about how we were paying for college. And so I've spilled a lot of ink over that. But as I started to age into the cohort where people were actually starting to send their kids to college, I was getting all these calls from people. And I was beginning to think about it, too, where people were like, whoa, wait a second. The list price is past three hundred thousand dollars for some of these schools. And the flagship state university is now one hundred thousand dollars for four years. How am I supposed to figure out whether like this school over here is $200,000 better than the other one over here? And I thought, huh, right? So you and I both know there are not a lot of fundamentally new questions in the world of personal finance, but this one was, and I had not gotten it through my thick skull yet, what it was. It wasn't how to save and it wasn't how to pay. It was what to pay for college. And as soon as I reframed it for myself that way personally, and then eventually for readers, I knew there was no way to answer it without a book. 
Yeah. And it is so multifaceted and I want to go through maybe a couple of those things because, so I'm on this walk this morning with friends of ours from the neighborhood and I told them I was going to be talking to you and that we were going to be talking about college and believe it or not, Ron, I know you'll find this shocking. Everybody had an opinion about why college is so expensive, right? And it's funny because I told them like, well, I just read Ron's book and most of your opinions are kind of wrong. Why do so many people, why do we get it wrong when it comes to why college is so expensive? For every parent you talk to about why college costs so much, you'll get two opinions per parent. And I'd say like 78.4% of them are going to be wrong. (laughs) The problem is, is that we seize on the things that we can see, right? So if you're out looking around, you're going to see new buildings and construction cranes and amenities, the likes of which you never had. If you went to college, you probably lived in a concrete block dorm with no air conditioning, right? Now you go to visit these schools and the laundry machines are free and they text you when the cycle is done. It's amazing, right? And you're thinking to myself, wow, uh, we taxpayers are paying for this at the state university and we parents are paying for it with our debt and uh, our home equity loans and our 529 plans. And so this must be the problem. It's not the problem. This stuff does cost money. I mean, let's face it, you think about the things that have grown in outsized proportion to the overall economy in terms of their overall prices, list prices or net prices, healthcare, education. What do those things have in common? Really highly compensated people. Why are they highly compensated? Because they have to train a really long time to open up people's bodies or in the classroom, open up people's brains and reassemble them from their component parts, right? So people wouldn't do these gigs unless they were being compensated and compensating them costs a lot of money. And so if you talk to these college presidents, 65, 70, 75, 78%, whatever it is of the budget goes towards paying people. And so if we want lower prices, they're going to need to be fewer people. But I don't think that's what we want as parents. As you're talking, I think in the book, you say that these facilities we're talking about, or you even have the, the example of the lazy river, right? A few of these colleges that have the lazy river that I think you said is like 6% of the problem, maybe. Yeah. So there are academics who have, who have looked at this and tried to figure out, okay, if we can examine all the publicly available budget documents, and then we can look at debt service and money that's spent on instruction versus things that are not spent on instruction. And, you know, some of this stuff gets hazy, but it really is a pretty tiny percentage that's getting spent on things that we might see as extraneous. So much of the money goes towards human resources. Well, and, and, and so back to that, I think to myself as you're talking then, well, you know, when I went to college forever ago, I was hoping that my college professors were, and I think they were appropriately compensated at that time. So are you saying the difference is, is really mostly healthcare costs for those same people that are really compensated at about the same rate, or are we paying professors more now than we were 25 years ago? I don't know that we're paying professors proportionately more. You know, one thing that is important to talk about when we talk about human resources cost is that every school, just about every school, has more administrators than they used to for every 1,000 undergraduates. Uh, You know, if you read the Wall Street Journal editorial page, you'll come to the conclusion that this is because of bloat and that bloat results from overregulation. Now, my feeling about it is that we get the regulations that we vote for at the ballot box. That's how this stuff works. 
And those regulations are for things like making sure your daughters have equal access to the playing field, right? Or making sure your children with mental health challenges have the resources they need to get equal access. So if you're a person of color, that there are resources there at the school or a first generation student to make sure that you have an opportunity to succeed. So I don't know that we want to subtract a large number of those administrators, even if they are highly compensated, because that decreases access, it decreases success. And when we do that, you know, we're less rich as an economy, right? So we do have the opportunity to influence this. But, you know, when I talk to college presidents about this, they sort of laugh at the notion of administrative bloat because all they ever hear are from angry parents who feel like there are not enough financial aid administrators to call them back within four hours and that their kid can't get an appointment at the counseling center. So, you know, what are we really talking about here when we complain about administrative bloat? You know, there's, and by the way, speaking of financial aid, that's a whole different area that I'm going to want to maybe you dive into it a lot. Hopefully we have a couple minutes to talk about that. But what I really want to ask is, did the game change then? If if we've got these these highly compensated professors, and I'm with you rightfully so, I want these people to be great in their field. I want to learn from people that know what they're talking about and can educate me or educate my kids. Did the game change with COVID? So here's what happened when COVID hit all of these schools in the space of hours, really. I mean, it wasn't even a couple of weeks. It was barely a couple of days. When all of these institutions sent the kids home, we learned something pretty quickly about what people value, right? Because right away, there was a clamor for refunds. What were people upset about? Well, to answer that question, you sort of have to stop and remind yourself, what is college for in the first place, right? And I spent years asking people this question, like, what are you actually paying for? Have you stopped to think about that, right? And I heard the same version of, you know, three different answers multiple times, right? And, and these were the main three categories. You go to college for the education, you go to college for the kinship, right? The friends and the mentors, and you go to college for the credential. That's usually what people are doing at college. Some version of that, not everybody wants all three. When everybody was sent home, two of those things were stripped away. The education wasn't as good because people were in these Zoom rooms and the kinship wasn't there either because everybody was scattered about. And the credential was worth something. Um, you know, you got that in the mail if you graduated in May and that was sort of the end of that. But the other two, you sort of lost that completely. So it was a good reminder, I think, for all of us of what we lose if we attempt to, you know, blow up school and go entirely to online education, I don't think very many people would actually like that very much. So for people who are rooting for some great reckoning or unraveling, you know, this experience has, has proven that we're not quite ready for that. Right. And so it's not surprising that all of these kids tried to come back in the fall, despite the health risks. They really missed the things that make residential undergraduate education unique. And the things that make it unique are what have made it a, a sort of a rite of passage for the middle class and above. It's going to be hard to change that. And so we've just proved it. It really is the same game. I mean, we're not going to see a big shift to people going to Zoom courses forever now. Well, it depends on where you are in the market. I mean, I guess I would think about it this way. On one hand, the general nature of residential undergraduate education hasn't really changed all that much in generation. That's sort of shocking, right? Sure. So you would expect, if that is the case, that, you know, a 
big freight train of technology is going to like run that industry over like a truck the way that it has nearly every other industry. And yet there's something unique about this. If we're talking about residential undergraduate education, this is something that we as parents are purchasing for our children. It is extremely high stakes, or at least we have convinced ourselves that it is. And if we're going to cut back on anything, it's probably going to be everything else other than that, because our kids have been waiting for this. We've been preparing them for it. They're excited for it. Are we going to disappoint them? Are we going to pull the rug out? Are we going to send them to you know, some other thing? Probably not. Now, that said, there's millions of people who attend college online who are older, who are coming back to school. And for them, having the flexibility, not needing to live on campus, that's great. And there's technology that can help, right? But if we're talking about 18-year-olds, it's not at all clear to me where the big disruption comes from. I've got some one other elephant in the room, which is one that I'm sure you've heard of a lot more than I have, which is why go to college at all? I've got people working on my house right now, these tradesmen. I can't get an electrician here, Ron. I, I, I can't get one. And when I do, the cost that I'm paying that electrician is a ton of money because he knows he's in demand. Is that a fallacy? Just skip college. No, I don't think it's a fallacy at all. There's all sorts of teenagers who are good at working with their hands, want to become good at working with their hands. And we know that there's a shortage of skilled tradespeople and, you know, there is absolute honor in doing that work. I do think that there is, a, you know, a little bit of a misconception out there about this, you know, notion that there are a whole bunch of welders running around um, or plumbers, you know, making one hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, but look, many of them do. And if you own your own company and you've got a bunch of people working for you, that may be the case. Right. The skills to manage people, to run a company, many of those are sort of inborn and innate, but some of the ability to do that and, and to you know run an organization, you can learn a lot of those skills at college. And so you are taking a risk when you say to yourself, you know what, screw all this. I'm going to have my kid get an apprentice, apprenticeship, right? And it'll just work out that way. Maybe it isn't so easy to get an apprenticeship. Maybe it isn't easy if you don't have the right connections or you don't know somebody in the union or, you know, you're not in the right, uh, you know, I mean, some unions are more open to certain kinds of people than other unions are. You know, we, we talk about the trades as if it's easy to go into one. Many of them require, you know, multiple community college courses, right? Um, you know, you can't just uh, you can't just raise your hand and say, I'm going to take an alternative path and it's going to be easy and it's going to work out for me and I'm going to earn the same amount of money. I mean, there are risks there too. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we present that as this really easy thing that we can go do and and not true. Let's draw some differences, Ron, between some of the different uh, college experiences people have. Public school versus private. You studied a lot of different schools. Key differences between them? Should we spring for the private school or for the more expensive school or go to the state school? Well, there's one obvious difference, which is cost. Now, the cost may not be as big a differential as you might think because the list price for a private institution is much more likely to be discounted and discounted a not small amount than the price for a public institution. I think a lot of people will find that surprising listening to this, that those private school prices you hear, not at all indicative of what you may pay. Exactly. You know, and we can talk about that in a moment, all the different ways that the discounts happen. Public universities tend to be 
bigger than private ones on average, right? So class size in many departments might be bigger. If the learning is important to you and you want to have access to professors such that they can become mentors, and there's a lot of good research proving how impactful that is, the odds may be longer at a big school and at a big school that's more likely to be public. The other thing about public schools versus private is that there may be a higher likelihood at a public university that you're being, particularly a large one, that you're being taught by an undergraduate in your first couple of years or by an adjunct professor who's not around very much. Now, those grad students or adjunct professors may be very, very good teachers, uh, but they may have other higher priorities than hanging around with teenagers and rearranging their brains and being mentors to them. Whereas at private universities and colleges in particular, undergraduate teaching may be the primary purpose of their existence. And so these are questions you have to ask depending on what your priority is. If the only point of the exercise is to get a credential, then the public university may well be a better choice for you because it's just going to be that much cheaper, right? Or if the kinship is important, well, a lot of public universities have thriving Greek organizations, right? You know, multiple fraternities and sororities. It's a great way to meet people. You know, if you don't drink too much or misbehave, you know, you'll have a network for life. Um, you know, these are all good things for the right kind of student. But again, all students need slightly different things. And so you need to be shopping for the precise thing that you need for before you can kind of separate public and private and make decisions that way. I was a little surprised to hear, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sure sounded to me as I was reading that community college to you might not be as sexy a method of discounting college as we think it is. Well, what I tried to do in the chapter on community college was just paint a really detailed, granular picture of the kind of head of steam and the level of organization you need to have in order to make it work for you financially. Because if the point is to get in and get out of community college in two years and then transfer to the flagship state university, you can do that. It will work. But you've got to have an advisor where you're like basically sleeping at the foot of their bed, right, for two years, checking in on every class and every choice. And you've got to be right on point on registration day, making sure you get exactly what you need and checking in with your intended destination three times a semester, making sure that all the credits are going to transfer. Because if it doesn't work or, you know, if it takes six years instead of four then you've wasted a lot of money that you thought you would save. And it's kind of a fractured social experience, right? I mean, you're you're dividing your education in two. And so you're spending that much less time with the friends that you're going to make and that much less time because it's divided between two places with potential mentors. So you're going to have to work that much harder to make connections. So it isn't easy. It isn't easy at all. And I just want people to understand that it's hard and you need to go in with a plan and a huge head of steam in order to make it work. What about gap years? My first book was about gap years. I didn't take one, but my best friend did. And we ended up collecting the experiences of 30 people who did and wrote about it in a book called Taking Time Off. And so I'm a huge fan and we've been waiting literally decades for the research to catch up with us. And now it has. And real life people with PhDs have looked at this and have found that people who take gap years get better grades afterwards, all things being equal than were, people who don't. You were right. We were right. 
And not only that, they get better jobs afterwards. This hasn't been proven definitively with data, but just think about it. You're hiring for an entry-level job and you've got a pile of 10 resumes and nine of these people went straight from high school to college and they worked at summer camps or they worked as waiters or they had an internship. And then you've got another one over here and that person spent nine months working as a U.S. contract, like a postal carrier, delivering the mail for nine months. And then they bought a used car and touched their foot down in all 50 states and like camped out the whole time. Right. Who would you hire? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Somebody with a little life experience. You kidding me? Exactly. Yeah. We are not going to have a lot of time to talk about FAFSA. And uh, man, do you dig into FAFSA. And I think for anyone that's going to school or for kids that are going to school, really need to know how this program works. It seems to me, like when I think about FAFSA, Ron, from just the top end, the types of questions they ask you, the things they want to know, like as an example, is this mom and dad's money? Because mom and dad have other priorities versus is this a student's money? Students shouldn't have any other priorities. So I get things like that. You seem to say, though, in the book that, okay, that's not a problem, but the way that we count, the way that we measure, the way the FAFSA is kind of set up, really surprisingly awful. Yeah. So the FAFSA, it turns out itself is a work in progress because since I finished the book, the federal legislators have passed a bill that's going to change some of this. And it's going to be a year of interpretation and rulemaking. And then come fall of 2022, things are going to be a little different. So Let's back up, though, right? You fill out the FAFSA form because it's the only way you can get any federal financial aid and all of the schools require it. And hundreds of other schools also require something called the CSS profile. What they're basically trying to do is ration available money, right? The federal government only has so much money. The schools only have so much money. They're trying to figure out how much you earn and how much you have. But there are different ways of keeping score, and all the schools may keep score ever so slightly differently. So the thing I most resent, um, which actually is about to change, um, is that for years the FAFSA spat out this computation, this dollar figure called the expected family contribution. And the problem with the way this works is that there are all these great expectations on us parents with these numbers that seem impossible you know, for us to conjure up. There are very different definitions of family out in the world, and the way the colleges define family and family obligations may be different than the way your family defines it. And this idea of a contribution, right, couching it in the language of of a gift, right? Well, I mean, if it's a gift, why isn't it tax deductible, right? (laughs) You know, they want us to, to feel all good about this because when we feel that way about it, like we're giving something to our kid, it takes us out of the realm of commerce. And when we remove ourselves from the realm of commerce, we become less demanding. We ask fewer questions. We make decisions on the basis of emotion. And all of that is to the benefit of these institutions. It is some of the behind the scenes stuff that you get into just seems so dirty. It just the whole process, Ron, I didn't realize half of the things that you talked about in the process. And it just, there's some potentially dirty stuff that institutions are going doing that parents don't know anything about. Well, I understand why you feel that way. And let me be crystal clear. Uh, Many of the people many of the well-meaning professionals who work within the system, they feel dirty too. 
they don't like it either. They have inherited this beast that kind of has evolved over years. And both because of competitive pressures in the marketplace with the schools down the street and at their, in their athletic conferences and internal pressures that are almost entirely around available resources and just needing to keep the lights on. They don't feel empowered to make more than, you know, a handful of incremental changes, right? I mean, we're talking about just untold billions of dollars flying around each year. And it's kind of like, a, you know, the, the biggest aircraft carrier you can imagine. It's, it's hard to turn those things around. Nobody's trying to be dirty. Nobody's trying to play dirty tricks, at least in the nonprofit space. The for-profit school space is a whole different thing. They're just trying to do their jobs. And on the consumer end, once you know what's happening, yeah, you may feel a little icky, but I don't think anybody's trying to hurt us on purpose. The book is called The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make. Every year, that decision gets more and more expensive. So if you've got young kids, if you've got kids going now, you definitely want to read. If you've got young kids going 18 years from now, I can just imagine. Holy, holy cow. Uh, available everywhere, I assume, Ron. Available everywhere. Books are sold. And then uh, my last question is about disruptors. Uh, you know, Google just came out with this new certificate, right? Hey, forget the degree. Just do our certificate. Is that a disruptor or is is that going nowhere? Well, it's really interesting that it was Google that came up with this, because the question you have to ask when you get down to brass tacks about something like this is, who is the consumer of the product the colleges are producing? So the consumer is graduate schools and employers. So whenever you talk about disruption in undergraduate higher education, the question you always have to ask is, how are the customers of the product going to feel about disruption? Because if the customers aren't buying the product that results from disruption, then the people who are paying to produce the product, the, the parents, right, are not going to go for it. So Google's doing something very clever. There's a sort of implicit and perhaps explicit promise that if you enter yourself into their system, that at least Google might be willing to hire you uh, if you succeed. So that's not nothing. Lots of people would like to work for Google. And Google is a very data-driven human resources enterprise. So I would not begrudge uh, you know, anybody with a 17-year-old programmer on their hands who wants to do nothing but code and is really great at it for taking a shot at that and you know, seeing how it works. But until we have everyone, every employer of every size in every industry saying, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll accept one of these online certificates, you know, in, in lieu of a bachelor's degree. That's that's cool. We'll put those people on an equal plane until we know that that is a fact. It's kind of dangerous, you know, to go that route instead of having a kid get the bachelor's degree that we know is acceptable in the marketplace. So I don't know, maybe you take a gap year. You work for nine months as a postal carrier, and then you take that money and you go and get the Google certificate and see how it goes. And if it doesn't go well, then you go to college. Hey, stackers, I'm your trivia pal, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And after all that talk about the ROI of college, I'm just glad that I made the best possible decision with my college. Yes, that's right. Southwest Bahama State Technical Institute and Beauty College. Turns out, old SBSTIBC was actually way ahead of its time. Not only were my classes all virtual, but most 
cut so many costs that they didn't even hire professors. It was just some dude in a suit reading the textbook. So frugal, so forward thinking. I'll share more about the most innovative school I know, but first, let's get to today's trivia question. Since the talk is all about student loans today, how many adults in the U.S. who are over 18 currently have federal student loans? Is it one quarter, one sixth, or one eighth of that demographic? I'll be back faster than you can learn something on YouTube, which is what I did for my Alchemy 301 course. Yeah, it was advanced. It was 300 level course. Well, you know, when I think about Navy Federal, I think about the veterans that have done so much for our country. And I also think about some of our active service members. want to say a special shout out to uh, my nephews, Colin and Nathan, who are both in the Navy. Colin is stationed outside Seattle, Washington on a submarine. And my nephew, Nathan, is in South Africa as an air traffic controller. And in Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants you also to celebrate members, many of whom go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. It's all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their family are eligible for Navy Federal membership. They offer 24-7 help from their U.S.-based member service. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equalizing lender. Hey, stackers, hit your favorite grad from Southwest Bahamas State Technical Institute of Beauty College, Joe's mom's neighbor Doug. Turns out that old SBSTIBC was actually way ahead of its time. On top of the virtual coursework, I actually came away with something everyone craves, practical experience that'll help you in the workplace. Like, like at one point, they sent me the components for 100 pairs of blue jeans. I had to practice my creativity and precision and sew them all together. And then for my logistics degree, I had to send them to addresses all over the map. Creativity at my own alma mater. I learned so much. Now it's time for you to learn the answer to today's trivia question. The question was, how many adults in the U.S. who are over 18 currently have federal student loans? Is it one quarter, one sixth, or one eighth of that demographic? If you guessed one quarter, you'd be right. Wow. If you want hard numbers, that means that roughly 44.7 million American adults have a federal student loan. Even though Southwest Bahamas State is well worth it, Maybe I should look at refinancing my 13% interest rate on student loans. That might be a little high, you think? Yeah, see ya! Big thanks to Ron for hanging out with us, talking college. I love the point that as much as people make it seem like community college makes it easier, skipping college makes life easier, Taking a gap year is easier, OG, that in truth, none of these things are easier. They're just different ladders, and it's important to choose the ladder that's appropriate. But this kind of fallacy that we got going on that, hey, just skip college altogether, going to be easier. I love Ron's point. Nope. 
could be better for you, but not easier. You should still expect to work hard. Yeah. I'm not sure that there's anything that's easier than anything else. It's just yeah. different. Yeah. Absolutely love that takeaway. Thanks again to Ron for hanging out with us. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. I don't I don't have anything today. Just just roll with the normal stuff, dude. That's great. Three times a week, you got to make a podcast and you can't even come up with your little part. Yeah, how many I mean, I love Haven, but can only think of so much scrap that I like <laughs> and value. It's your loved ones in your time. You should say at one point, just say your loved ones in your time. Ah, yes. My loved ones in my time. There you go. It's why they make buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. Their application is simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision, affordable prices. I love the emails that I get from people who went through Haven Life verifying what we already know, OG, that it was a super simple process. They got it done and now they can go about living their life. Today, we're going to say hi to our new friend, Suzanne. Say hi, Suzanne. Hi, Joe and OG. This is Suzanne from Michigan. My husband and I are in our early 60s. I don't work and my husband hopes to retire in the next couple of years. Uh, we've done well saving, so we're pretty well set for retirement. We have one grandchild who will be a year old in March, and I would like to start some kind of savings or investment for her. I envision sitting down with her annually to discuss money, making it a learning opportunity. I say this as a lump sum on her first birthday with possible smaller gifts on subsequent birthdays. This is not necessarily money focused on paying for college. So I would like your ideas and options that we could consider, but I do have five concerns. What if we have a bunch of grandchildren? We have four adult kids. Uh, so this program, whatever we do, needs to be sustainable. Number two, what if the grandchild is not good with money or makes really bad life decisions? How can we have more control over that? Three, what if we have a crisis during our retirement and we need money? Four, how much money do we need to work with in order to make an impression on a child? That's a kind of a weird question, but I do wonder. Number five, what are the tax ramifications of this? Should the account be in my husband, my name or the child's name? Any thoughts or suggestions would be appreciated. And lastly, size medium t-shirt only if it has three-quarter sleeves, V-neck, and princess seaming. Thank you. Love you guys. <laughs> a special order. A special order Haven Life t-shirt, OG. Thanks, Suzanne, for the question. Congratulations on having a, a one-year-old grandchild in the family. That's a big moment for grandma, I'm sure. Lots to chew on there, OG. What you got? Well, first of all, like Joe said, congratulations on the grandy kitty. The interesting thing about compounding is that you need so little dollars to make such a huge, huge, huge difference. And there's a lot of different ways to do this. I've seen successful ways of handling this and, and other ways that probably would be considered less successful. I think the first thing is, is that you have to decide how you want to approach this because kids and even young adults do not have any concept of how much money is. You know, so if you said to my 13-year-old, "Hey, you've got $10,000 in an account." To him that's more money than exists in the entire universe. Like there is no way to ever outspend $10,000. The difference between 10,000 and 100 in his mind is 
100,000, you mean? No, a hundred dollars. I'm uh, saying is 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 not that that much. Or would he go? No, nah, hundred dollars. Well, hundred dollars. I I I think that 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 is probably moved. I mean, he knows video games are fifty bucks. You know, so he can kind of conceptualize the the you know a hundred dollars is two video games type of thing. But I guess my point is is that he doesn't see the gap between a hundred and ten thousand right. as big as you and I do. Right. It just it's ten thousand some number out in the it's air. It's some huge number. Yeah, that is north in- of a hundred. That, that that is impossible to run out. And I would suspect that that's also true, you know, when you talk to 20-year-olds about a million dollars. Like a 20-year-old, a million dollars is more money than exists in the entire universe. So when you talk to 30-year-olds who tell me they can live on 145 bucks that they've saved. Well, there's that. So I think that you have to understand that no matter what dollar you talk about, you're going to have to uh, recognize that it's kind of inconceivable. The way that I think works the best here is to not make a big deal about it. You know, we started with our kids using the app Stockpile because it gives them the ownership of the organizations that they participate in. So Stockpile is an online brokerage account. It's an online app that you can go and pick different investments. My kids have to put half of their savings into or half of their earnings into their investment account. And, and they buy whatever they want to buy. Like, I don't supervise it. We just talk about it and let them kind of guide their own decisions. And so they get to see the ownership returns of owning stock versus putting money in the bank. That's the lesson that I'm trying to teach them. The money that we've set aside for college or the money that we've set aside for them in a trust is completely unknown to them because I also think that there's a real big risk of if I knew when I, I could just put this on me. If I knew when I was 18 that grandma and grandpa left me a couple million bucks, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in right now. <laughs> maybe I may be what, in a better mean, spot. To- or I was going to say, you mean totally screwed. <laughs> yeah. Better or worse. I don't know, but it would be different. And I think a lot of life is just about the lessons associated with kind of figuring it out, you know? And if you can have somebody that's gone down the path before you that can say, hey, you, you want to steer clear of that, you know, you want to go this way instead of that way. But so much of growth and learning and and development is figuring out the things along the way. We've all done things that our parents told us not to do. And our kids are going to do things that that I tell them not to do. So it's just, you know, hopefully they don't do the catastrophic things. So that being said, I think you can make a huge difference with like 10 grand. I think if you put 10,000 bucks, you just do the compounding. You put $10,000 into an account and you don't tell anybody about it until they're 60, it turns into a million dollars. That's so much money. But I think part of it is the lessons, being able to help them with uh, money lessons along the way. Well, so, I, and I understand that. So what I'm saying is, is that you have to figure out what you're trying to do. Are you yeah. trying to make it so that from a financial standpoint, that they're safe and secure and that you can, with a relatively low amount, sure, $10,000 right. is some money, right. but not that's not the end of the world money. With 10000 bucks, you can make it so your grandkid is 60 with a million. Now, a million in 60 years from now isn't the same as it is today. I, I understand that. But it might be the difference between retiring at 60 and retiring at 66. Sure. But you have to prevent the mistake along the way. You have to prevent the, but grandma, can't I use the money for a car down payment? But grandma, can't I use that money for my engagement ring? But grandma, can't I use that money for my house? You know, you literally have to let it sit for, for six decades along the way. So I think there's two components to this. One is if you want to teach people about money, you're not going to do it when they're one. That's going to be when they're 10 or 11 or nine or something like that. And then you can do it with really small dollar amounts and things like the stockpile app where you talk about the difference between putting money in a savings account and cool, you got a penny of interest this, this year, 
where you put it in your investment account and you got 52 cents of Apple share dividend. You can do that with with a dollar. You don't need a whole bunch of money. If you're trying to set it up for them for a long term, I think you can do it that way, you know, a lump sum, but for a long time. I don't think most people know ownership, like grandkids, kids generally, and you don't even have to tell them how you own the stuff. So with regard to taking it back, I think opening the brokerage account where it actually is Suzanne's account, but the beneficiary is the grandchild might be the best way to go. Yeah. And and just tell them, hey, this is your money and I'm going to get the statements. You and I can talk about it once a year, twice a year, whatever you think is appropriate. Go over how it works, buy the stuff. Suzanne passes away, grandchild gets it. It's if uh, Suzanne lives for a long time, she can then gift it in pieces. There's some gift tax rules, but those apply now to fairly large numbers. So I think right. that um, she could easily uh, dole out the money a piece at a time. Might not work for, you know, to pay cash for a house that way, but in other ways. And, and the cool thing, she wants it sustainable OG. That's probably a sustainable way. And she can take it back because it really is her money with the child as the beneficiary, the grandchild as a beneficiary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of this is in a bigger context of an overall financial or estate plan and trying to, if you're, if you're really at the margin and you're like, I'm kind of thinking we might make it for retirement, but, but we might not. So we might need this money back. It's probably not a good idea to do, or you just do it with a lower dollar amount, you know, yeah. where it is sustainable over a long period of time. I still submit the whole, like, let me show the kids the brokerage account statement and look, you know, you've got 20 grand and look, you've got 200 grand, like that sort of stuff. It just, I don't think it sends the right message and I don't think it, it teaches anything other than like, Oh, grandma's got money for me. You know, like it, I don't think there's any way but I to think do walking that. through how a stock works. Yeah. But you can do that with 500 bucks on stockpile. Exactly. That's my yes. point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you can do both of these things two separate ways. Teach the money when they get to be a middle schooler and you can talk about the differences between savings and investing and lending money and how that all works. And you can illustrate that with a really low dollar amount. And you can also establish an account that is untouchable to them or even unknown to them for the next 50 or 60 years that catapults their, you know, their life savings and that sort of thing. But I think there's also a middle ground. It doesn't have to be the stockpile approach with the stockpile fees attached. I think that you can, if if she's going to save a sizable amount of money, she doesn't have to tell the kid about the amount of money that they're saving, doesn't have to show them the bottom line, just says, hey, guess what? You own GM stock or you own, you know, you, you can show them the top line. So you don't have to show them the bottom line. Hmm. I'll tell you another thing that I like. I like a program called Goal Setter. I've talked about this lately. It's a great way to teach kids about money. Uh, the way that it works is that Suzanne, you as grandma have your account on goal setter. You put money in that you can then dole out money to the kids. The kids, uh, the grandkids can come up with three types of goals, savings goals for long-term savings goals for short-term stuff, like maybe a new bike or whatever. And then the third is uh, charitable goals. It teaches kids, OG, uh, financial planning. We've had Tanya Van Court on before. The bad news about Goal Setter is once you move money over to the kids portion of the account, you ain't getting it back. But there's all kinds of games and, uh, and uh, financial tools that can help you teach kids uh, about money and about planning. Okay. That ought to get you started. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good luck. Take those eight of those. Uh, by the way, tax ramifications also, OG, let's cover that one. If you keep the money in your name, it's going to be as if it's your account, right? And if you give the money to the kid, 
assuming it's not one of these huge gifts where you have to file a gift tax return, you just gave it away. Yeah, keep it in your name. Thanks for the question, Suzanne. By the way, you did not give Gertrude your email, so we need uh, your email as well if you can contact us. And uh, I don't know that we have the specific shirt still in stock. We had a bunch of them, and we've run out of those, OG, unfortunately. So she might get the one that everybody else gets. Stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail if you'd like to ask a question as well. That's going to do it for today. Two quick things. Big thanks to everybody who's left us a review of this show. It's so nice to see people telling future stackers what they can get out of joining our little community. The reviews not only make me laugh, but they, but they also, they also, I think sometimes people go, what the heck is this? I, I, I've got to go check out the Stacky Benjamin show. Also, thanks to people who shared this episode with friends. If you know somebody who has children, I don't know a better discussion than the one we just had with, uh, with Ron Lieber today. We'll let Doug thank Ron. But last, as you all know, last year was uh, quite a dumpster fire of a year. And after the struggles that uh, we collectively had as a country and as a world, you deserve it to have a friend Take a look and make sure that you're okay and that you've got the best help in your corner. OG and his team are taking clients here in 2021. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG to find their calendar and talk with them about their team interfacing with your team for better financial results in the future. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from here, my friend. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our headline segment. Using apps to get ahead with your money? Change your password and make yourself a little harder to reach than everyone else. That won't make you invulnerable from hackers, but it will make you seem like a much more boring target. And take it from me, boring is good. Second, take a lesson from Ron Lieber. Going to college isn't the no-brainer that it used to be, but it also isn't a no-brainer to forego the experience. No matter what path you choose, it's going to require work. And because of that, you should evaluate your options carefully and no matter what ladder you choose, be prepared to put in the work. But the big lesson? Oh, geez, questioning my Southwest Bahamas State 13% interest only student loan. You know, the, the one I had to also put up my car as collateral to get. I'm sure it makes sense, though. Colleges would never do something underhanded, right? I mean, they're austere institutions or something. Thanks to Ron Lieber for joining us in the basement. You can learn more about Ron by heading to our show notes page or by checking out his new book, The Price You Pay for College. This show is created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and there's a 73% chance that I played Chuck on Happy Days. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. Hey, how come I always have to say the amazing Steve Stewart? That Richie kid's pretty cool and we don't add any adjectives before his name. What about me? How come I'm never the incomparable neighbor Doug or the unimaginably cool neighbor Doug or even the unfathomably intelligent neighbor Doug? Well, I'm ready to do an official review, OG, of this show on Apple Plus called Tehran. I'm five episodes in. I would play a trailer, but there are a number of subtitles. And I know what some people are going to say. They're going to go, oh, subtitles. I'm out. I'm not even going to pretend like I don't absolutely love this show. This is a fantastic show. There are a few shows that equal this in my brain. And I hope it ends as good as it's been. Because I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm very worried about this woman. And for those of you who missed my glowing review of the first episode, and I said I wasn't ready to talk about it in depth, the show opens up with a cheap flight from Jordan to India. And by cheap, I mean it's on a discount airline that has uh, these Israeli young people on it. And the flight has engine problems and is going down in Iran. And the young people on this flight are incredibly nervous because I don't know if you know this, OG, I don't mean to say spoiler here, but Israeli and Iranian governments uh, don't really like each other that much. They're not big fans. Yeah. Yeah. You find that out in episode one. I didn't know that before this, but they don't really get along. So they are uh, the the Israeli young people visibly upset that they're going to land in Iran. And in fact, get up and tell the flight attendant that please land this plane anywhere but Tehran because we're going to go to jail. We're considered an enemy of the state. We're going to go to jail. Uh, our life is over. And they said, we have, engine, we have an engine problem. We, we're going down where we're going down. And in fact, then it cuts to... The plane is now empty and these two people are still sitting on the plane and uh, the flight attendants are telling them they have to get off the plane. They must get off the plane. And so they get off the plane and you'll never guess what happens. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they were arrested. The authorities are waiting right there (laughs) And, and they immediately are taken in for questioning. But what's interesting is there are two people on this plane otherwise And the camera pays a little bit of attention to these two people. But as it goes on, it's clear that there is a whole spy operation going on at the same time that this is happening. And really, in the background, the spy operation is where this is headed. 
without foreshadowing too much, the operative is tasked with helping the Israeli government take out nuclear power in Iran, gets partway done with the mission, and everything goes horribly wrong. And now she, which makes it even more complex, she is trapped in Iran. And now the authorities are going after her. The Israelis are trying to get her out. She's, she doesn't know who to trust and who not to trust. It's all compelling. The Iranian official who's in charge of this investigation, OG, his wife has a brain tumor. He's doing his job as best he can. He's a believable character, sometimes a very likable guy doing his job. The woman is clearly afraid. The people that are helping her are afraid for their life because if you help somebody who's an Israeli hide from the Iranian government, pretty bad stuff's going to happen to you too. Right. So between the politics, the cat and mouse chase, the emotion, the emotional toll, it's taking on everybody, either hiding this person, trying to catch this person. What's at stake for every character in this show is so high. And uh, just, just so far, it is, it's, it's brilliant. And brilliant is a word, you know, I glowingly talk about a lot of shows that I see. I don't use the word brilliant much. I'll tell you this. Broadchurch was brilliant. That was just an amazing show. Before this, the best show of this kind that, that I've seen. And I'll give you another example. I've been watching Killing Eve. I keep having to stop during Killing Eve. I like it. I was told that I would love it. Not sure that I love it. Might be a little too intense for Believe it or not, Killing Eve is more intense. I don't know if it's intense or gory or I don't... I don't know what it is about Killing Eve that is uh, that's maybe rubbing me a little bit the wrong way. Uh, I like it, and I'm going to finish it, but Tehran is so much better. And the only other show I've seen lately that I will classify as brilliant was also on Apple TV, Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is a show that I thought was the dumbest show on earth when I first started watching it. And by the end of the first season, I thought, that is some brilliant television. That's some amazing. T- I, I cannot wait for more Ted Lasso. It's on the list. Yeah, uh, but do yourself a favor and watch Tehran. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, There are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. 
Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.